So I'm going to carry on. I basically looked at the passage that we're up to in our Mark series, which is Mark 10. But I'm actually going to change it up slightly here, so don't turn to Mark 10. Um, we're going to do the same passage, but from a different gospel. Partly because I've, I've done some stuff on this in the past. So uh, I thought, you know what, I can just amend a preach to make it work. So, but I don't know about you, it felt like a bit of a rush last night, thinking, okay, I've got to, I've got to write a preach, I've got to get this sorted. And I feel like life is honestly one of those times where I'm constantly, who else feels like they're constantly in a rush? Yeah? I know for me, it does feel very rushed with three small kids. And I find myself at times, you know, going to the toilet and I'm, I'm flushing it before I've even finished. <laughs> Any guys admit to that? No, is it just me? I know you ladies don't do that, yeah. I find going to the supermarket, okay, I'm constantly thinking about the quickest route, the quickest way I can do things. So it can be a case of if Tor and I are there, we're looking at the shopping list, I'm saying, you go that aisle, you go that, 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 I'll go this. And it's like we're not even doing the shop together, it's all about we're in a rush and this has got to be done as quick as possible. And you get to the queues and you start looking at the queues and you're thinking, which queue do I get into here? That one has got two old ladies in, no, I won't go for that one. <laughs> Nine short, but they look like they've all got little baskets, it could be quick. That cue assistant, she on the till, she looks quick. She's flying them through, and you're looking, it's a bit like a warrior going, which, which cue do I go with? No, and it's like, Tor, you go that cue, I'll go this cue, whichever one works. <laughs> and life just feels like it's one of those really busy times. And we don't actually stop, do we, to ask some of the big questions in life. And the story that we're going to look at today Actually, there's a huge question that is asked by a man who could be in a rush. But he does ask a really big question. And if you have got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Luke 18, I'm going from Luke because I think the passage also helps us to understand. Uh, different stories in the passage help us to understand this story. It's Luke 18, verse 18, and it's the rich ruler. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. Huge question just been asked by a guy to Jesus. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. But all of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I'm going to stop it there. So this is a really well-known story in the Bible. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard of it. 
Many of you will have heard preachers on it. And if I'm honest, when you study it, there's something about this story that is really difficult to stomach. Okay? The stereotype, I think, of Jesus being this mild, gentle saviour who welcomes everyone into his kingdom doesn't appear to be this Jesus that we read in this passage. And um, if I'm honest, I just want to have a look at this passage. I want to try and understand a little bit more about this rich young ruler, who he was, and look at some of the questions that are asked and some of the responses that come to try and help us to understand what is, why did Jesus respond to this man the way that he did? Okay? So, this rich young ruler, who is he? Well, this story is told in three Gospels. It's told in Matthew, it's told in Mark, and it's told... In Luke, and this is obviously Mark 10, this would have been where we were progressing. And in, I've chosen Luke's because it comes on the back of three stories, I think, that help us to understand some of where Jesus is going in what he's doing in this, in this story. And the first is actually what I preached on last time, it was the persistent widow. Okay, you see that at the beginning of Luke 18, if you've got your Bibles open. And um, I spoke about how actually this persistent widow, the whole point of this story was to remind us Firstly, that we become totally dependent to a loving, generous God. Secondly, you've got this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus essentially told this story to people who were confident in their own righteousness. Okay? And actually, don't miss this, because this, this man, this rich young man, fits that mould. He appears to be confident in his own righteousness. And then in verses 15 to 17, you've got Jesus blessing some children that he taught. and um, Sorry, blessing some children that were brought to him. And he said that if we want to receive the kingdom, to enter the kingdom of God, we're to receive it like these children did. Okay? And just to say, it's not just coincidence that these stories are ordered in the way they're ordered. We have to understand that the author's very deliberate in the way that he's placing these stories because they help to serve every story that comes. And so it's really important to look at what comes before and what comes after. So next we see this story, the rich young ruler. And this, man, this young man enters, and you know, this guy gets a really bad rap, let's be honest. Um, I don't think anybody looks at the rich young ruler and thinks, wow, what a guy. Um, but I want to look at him, I want to look at some of his responses. Because actually this guy, just firstly, he actually appears to be respectful. Okay? What do we know about him? He addresses Jesus with respect. We see that as he first comes to him, good teacher, good master. The name of this guy is not given. Okay? But his status is, verse 23 says he's wealthy, he's rich. And verse 18 tells us he is a ruler. Matthew's account of this story tells us that he's young and when you read scholars on trying to understand who this guy is actually the, the majority of scholars believe he was a Jewish religious leader possibly a ruler of the synagogue okay so there he is this guy he is a respectful man who had everything it appears he's devout he's young he's wealthy he's highly respected he's influential do you know, if we had a guy coming to us, one of our friends like this, you'd think, man, this guy's not a bad catch for the kingdom of God, is he? He appears to be spiritual. 
You know, let's look at his request. He wants to know about eternal life. He doesn't appear to be a materialist, someone who's only interested in things. He feels a need in his life, and he wants to be right with God. So he's approaching Jesus. He doesn't want to miss out. He wants to make sure that he is able to receive this gift of eternal life. In fact, in Mark's account, it tells us that this guy came running to Jesus. And he knelt before Jesus. When we think about other characters, you've got Nicodemus. Yeah? He came by night. Because he wanted to do it undercover. He was a guy with reputation. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus in the day. You've got this rich, young ruler coming, running to Jesus, kneeling at his feet. He's a reputable man. And to do this in broad daylight, man, that would have took great courage for this leader to do that. He appears to be teachable. He asks, what shall I do? He's not telling Jesus what he thinks he should be doing. He asks the question, what shall I do? He wants to know. He appears to be sincere. He appears to be respectful and spiritual, spiritual and teachable. And if I'm honest, this is why this story feels quite uncomfortable when we read it and we see how Jesus responds. And I think... As we look at this story, there's something evangelistically for us to understand and to learn from. I think in our evangelism efforts, so often with our friends, people we're actually chatting to and they're asking big questions in life, we spend a lot of our time trying to get people to admit they need to be saved from something. Yeah? There's actually something you've done wrong. There's something you need to be saved from, this sin that's in your life. Here's a young man who has actually admitted his need before he ever came to Jesus. He appears to be a perfect candidate for salvation. You know, he's ready to sign the card. He's ready to walk down the aisle. He's ready to say the prayer and do whatever. He appears ready. He's eager. And he admits that although he has this wealth, there's still something lacking spiritually. But Jesus' reaction seems so contrary to how we're likely to respond in this situation, if we're totally honest. And as I say, that is quite disturbing when we look at this story, because I don't think any of us would respond to somebody in that way like Jesus did. So why is it that Jesus responds in this way? Just remind ourselves, he says, why do you call me good? That's his first response. How do I inherit eternal life? Why, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This response appears almost abrupt or harsh. Why do you call me good? John MacArthur, he's a Bible scholar, he says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus would have failed personal evangelism class in almost every Bible college worldwide. Here was a man who wanted to go to heaven, and he didn't mention faith or the facts of redemption. He didn't challenge the man to believe. He failed to pull in the nets. He didn't ask the man to pray the sinner's prayer. After all, a good evangelist 
wouldn't let a guy get away who wanted to have eternal life, would he? No one is good except God alone. What's Jesus trying to do in asking this question? In Matthew's account, he says, what good thing must I do? And I think Jesus is actually challenging this man in his understanding, firstly, of what is a good thing. And who is he speaking to? He doesn't understand who he's speaking to. And he believes that he can earn his way to salvation. And it's funny, I think when I chat to lots of friends about Jesus, one of the most common responses when we start to talk about sin, when we start to talk about making our own choices and, and selfish ways, is that most people say, do you know what? I'm a good person. Yeah, it's this good word coming back. I'm, I'm good. I don't hurt other people. I don't harm other people. I think I'm living a fairly good life. So I want to ask the question, what is it in their day? What do the religious leaders believe? How do they quantify good in those days? And I want to suggest it was the things of the outward appearance. How often you prayed. How many laws you obeyed. All of the things that people perceive. And this man who's approached Jesus obviously believes he is a good man. And he's an upstanding man in the community. And Jesus is confronting this mentality that he has. It's like, how do you even know me? You've made this assessment of Jesus from the outward appearance again. And it reminds us of this story that's in this chapter. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee thought that he was righteous because of the things he did, didn't he? He fasted and he prayed and he kept the law. And in, the, in that culture, those were the things that would have made you stand out and would have made you feel self-righteous. And it's something very much in their culture. We look at Job, okay, in the Old Testament, and we see what happened to him. He lost everything. He was a wealthy man with influence and a good family, a large family. And for these things, he was seen as a man who had great relationship with God. And he lost it. And what was people's assumption? You've done something wrong against God. And that's why you've lost everything. It's why you're not wealthy anymore. God has taken it away from you. And this was the mindset that was there. And that mindset, I want to suggest, hasn't really changed in Christendom. It hasn't changed here. Wealth and influence was seen as success and that you had good relationship with God. And I think specifically, maybe more in the African nations and in America, the health and wealth is preached all around. That if you honour God, he will bless you with material things. It's a huge bit of teaching that people use. And it's wrong. Jesus moves on then to start asking him about the law. And he starts 
he basically gives him some of the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. I'm pretty sure with this guy's response, he's just broken one of those commandments. Do not give false testimony. But there's suggestions that these are the... He misses the first four commandments, Jesus. And those four commandments are all related to relationship with God. And he focuses on these six commandments, which are all to do with community. And he's asked a very selfish question. How do I? Everything for him is an individualistic thing. It's about how righteous he is. It's about how he makes his way to eternal life. And Jesus is trying to pick up on the fact that this isn't an I thing. Salvation isn't found in the I, it's found in the we. But the other thing that we realise is when we compare it with the Pharisee and the tax collector, just thinking about the responses, how do we think the tax collector would have responded to these questions? To this, how have you kept these commands? Do not steal, do not give false testimony. For a tax collector in that day, this was their business. And we read in that verse 13 for the tax collector and the Pharisee, the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. That is the tax collector's response to his sin. He recognises the sin in his life. It's so evident. And you know, we don't like to admit when we're wrong. We don't like to admit when we've fallen short of God's standards. And I remember there was a, a program out and it was all about a Nazi called Adolf Eichmann. And this program showed you this courtroom drama of what happened. He, he essentially was the instigator of the Holocaust. Adolf Eichmann. And there was questions asked about this man. If he was the instigator of the Holocaust, how is it possible for him to have acted in the way he did? There's questions about who he was. Was he a monster? He must have been either a monster or an absolute madman. Or perhaps maybe he was something more terrifying than any of those things. Perhaps he was normal. And the answer to this question that was being asked of this man came from a man called Yehil Dinner. And he went to court. And this was a man who had suffered for years in Auschwitz, in the concentration camps. And he knew Adolf Eichmann. And as he appeared in court, he began to sob uncontrollably as he met eyes with Adolf Eichmann. And actually, he then fainted and collapsed in a heap on the floor as the judge pounded his um, gavel for order in the courtroom. And everyone was asking, it must just be the absolute hatred that he has for this man. It's the horrid memories he must have. Maybe it's absolute fear of seeing this man once again. But this man, Yehil Dinner, says this. He says he realised all of a sudden that Eichmann 
was not the godlike officer that he had imagined, but he was an ordinary man. And he said, I was afraid of myself, that I also am capable of doing such atrocities. I am exactly like he is. Do you know, we may not have committed serious crimes like Eichmann has here, but the Bible tells us in our hearts we have all fallen short. We're all guilty of God's standard. Every single one of us. And you know, we don't like admitting it when we've got it wrong. But I want to ask the question, if Jesus was standing in front of us and he'd said, you know the commandments, have you kept to these? What would our response be, honestly? And I, I hope, I hope all of us would have the understanding, the humility to admit that actually we have blown it on every level. And that we needed mercy in this situation. But let's just look, what did the rich young ruler say to Jesus? He said, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Case closed, I am good enough, I'm perfect. He's saying, I deserve this inheritance that you're offering. And it reminds us specifically, and I think this story's there specifically, it reminds us of the tax collector. Let's think about his response. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. There's an arrogance, there's a total lack of self-awareness of who he is. And he's actually addressing Jesus as a good man, good teacher. Actually, in front of him here is God incarnate. That's who he's actually addressing. So he has a total lack of humility when it comes to wrecking his to understanding his true fallen nature and character. And he has a total misunderstanding of who he's speaking to here. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just to remind us again, we've all fallen short. The standard to be kept is not just high. The Bible tells us it's absolutely impossible. It's impossible to keep to God's standards. And I, I want to suggest we might look at God sometimes and say, it's so hard. That's an understandable response. But that's the very point. It's impossible to work your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot work your way into the kingdom of God. No amount of good deeds, no amount of charity work or serving in your church or even giving away all of your money makes you righteous enough to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them this, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. We then find out his response was, he was sad because he was very rich. So what is the message of this story then? 
Does it mean actually what we just need to do is sell everything we have and, and give it to the poor and then we will receive eternal life? Is that the message that Jesus is trying to get over? No. Why? That would make it fundamentally another works-based agenda. That we could earn our way to salvation by giving everything away that we have. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually addressing the heart of this young man. This young man thought that he could earn his way to salvation. He thought highly of himself. And thought, you know what, I'm sure to be the right sort of candidate that God's going to welcome into his kingdom. He's going to welcome me into eternity because, do you know what? I bring something to the table. But Jesus, what he did is he exposed the idol in this man's life. He exposed his self-righteous heart. He exposed something that this man could not let go of. Jesus, though, loving this guy, is exposing the painful truth of his heart. And the truth for this guy is he values what he has on earth more than what he desires in eternity. He values what he has on earth more than what he desires in eternity. There's a story about how to trap a monkey. Anyone heard about this? No? Yes? So the story goes that African hunters, if they wanted to capture monkeys, which they did, and they wanted to catch them unharmed, is that they would use a bottle. And I didn't have a bottle exactly like this, because I don't catch monkeys. But I do have a vase, which my wife has let me use as long as I don't smash it. And this bottle would have a long, narrow neck to it. And it was tied to a tree. And what they would do is they would put some really big, nice nuts in the bottom of this jar. And they would leave it overnight. And they would come to this bottle in the morning, and there, there there'd be a monkey with his hand in the bottle. And his hand would be clenching the nuts. And they're quite large nuts. At any time, this monkey could have been free simply by opening its hand and letting go of the nuts. But it was impossible for the monkey to take their hand out of the jar, holding the nuts. And what would happen is the monkey would be there, caught, because he couldn't let go of the nuts, because he wanted them. And he just had to let go. And the danger is that our attachment to possessions keeps us from a total dependence on God. Jesus told this young man to sell it and to give all he had to the poor. Not because the poor needed the money, although they do, but because he needed to be liberated from his belongings. We actually read in Mark that Jesus loved this man. Okay? Jesus loved this young man. And the advice he was given was for his own good sake. He needed to be liberated from his belongings. It was his wealth that he worshipped, and he worshipped it above God. It was his idol. So he says, Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You know, most of us will have heard this metaphor. It's a really powerful metaphor. But I want to say people have struggled with it for centuries trying to understand what it actually means. Um, Some have suggested that it refers to a gate in the city walls. Okay, and as you came with your donkey lading with, with goods, as you came into the city, you couldn't get that donkey through the gate, through this small entrance that the donkeys had to go through. You had to take everything off the donkey to get the donkey through. Okay, but the problem with that is there's no such evidence of this gate ever existing. The Greek word used in the original text means a sewing needle. But in any case, we're not going to be able to solve this one this morning. Jesus is talking about trying to push something much too large through an opening much too small. And the only way to get something much too large through that type of opening is to get rid of all of the excess, to let go. I want to say this about wealth. Wealth has the potential to lull us into thinking We do not need anyone. Wealth entices us to believe us, to believe that we will be satisfied with what it can purchase, with what it can do. Wealth often becomes the rock that we build our futures on. It's the bricks and mortar, it's the pensions for the future life. And success to the world actually is about independence. You've succeeded if you've become totally independent of others. That's how the world would look at success. But I want to say the Bible tells us the exact opposite, doesn't it? The Bible reminds us that we are utterly dependent on him. That he is the only one who will truly satisfy. That he is the rock that we can stand firmly on. We know it, we've seen it in our lifetimes In 08, with the financial crisis, we saw the markets crash. We saw suicide rates increase massively. Why? Because people had built their hopes on their wealth. It was their safety nets. It was their pride and joy. It was their reputation. And suddenly, in an instant, it was wiped clean away. I know the company I was working for at the time had made an awful lot of money the year before, and overnight, two million pounds we lost, just based on the stock that we had and the price that came down. I want to say this as an aside, because it's really important when we talk about money, that wealth is not evil, and it's not wrong. Actually, it's the love of money that is wrong. And... For some, this will be an idol in our lives. I just want to remind us, actually, as a country, this applies to all of us because we're all wealthy compared to many countries in the world. I think so often we look at the Bill Gates or whoever it is in the world who's massively rich and wealthy, but we've got to look at our own lives. So for some, this will be the idol. For others, the idol will be different things. It might be relationships, it might be friends or family, it might be acceptance, it might be how many followers you have on social media, 
It might be about how you look, about your health, about your fitness. The question is, are these things going to hinder your dependence on God or not? Are you going to hang on to these for dear life? Because following Jesus like this doesn't work. That's what you're doing if you're holding on to something that you're not willing to give over to Jesus. You can't function like this. I want to suggest we need to keep coming back to the fact that it's simply impossible to please God with the things that we have done or accomplished with our own deeds. Our salvation is not depending on the things we have done or do. Everything that we have is his. Okay? So I want to ask the question, are we trusting in our own futile efforts or are we trusting in Christ's death to save us? That's the key that Jesus is trying to pinpoint. I want to end by just looking a little bit at the story of Jesus and the children because this story comes right before this wealthy young man. And it's a little few passages. And actually, once we understand it, what we're doing is receiving the antidote to falling into the trap of this young ruler. Jesus has actually given us the answer before he probes the question again. So it says, um, verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Do you know, the disciples were more interested. They thought, actually, Jesus had to be hanging around with the rich young rulers, with the leaders of the day, because he was an influencer. So for them, they were upset that Jesus was wasting his time blessing children. And Jesus rebukes them. And this passage, again, is a really quite misunderstood passage, I think. I think so often we then reel out some things that we think children are and say, well, surely this is how we enter the, the, the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is talking about. So I know often we'd say, listen, we need to come with humility. Of course we need to come with humility. But if, you're, if I'm honest, I have three children and thinking about humility in my children, <laughs> maybe it's just me. But children lack humility. So I'm not sure it's actually about Jesus is saying, oh, enter the kingdom humbly like a child. They talk about the trust that children have in people naturally. They have a natural trust. They just trust you. And I want to suggest, this isn't, we're talking about faith. So they say, listen, you must have faith like a child. Or trusting people like children do. But I want to suggest maybe children are more gullible than understanding what true faith is. Okay? They're very influential in that sense. I don't think that Jesus is talking about that either. I think actually, when we look at the passage and we understand the age of the children that are being brought to Jesus, he refers to them as babes. Okay? And they're actually being carried to Jesus to have a blessing. And it was something that parents did 
You know, the problem is we actually see pictures, don't we, that people have portrayed of the children coming to Jesus. And it's these seven or eight, nine-year-olds. Yeah, when you see the picture and you think of Jesus blessing these children, that's the age group that we think of because they're the pictures that we see. But actually, he talks about babes. And there was a Jewish custom that actually you would take your child to the rabbi and you would get them to lay hands and bless the child. But this is for children under one. Okay? And I think it's really important to understand that when we think about what is Jesus saying when you come to the kingdom like that. I think there's something here of not coming in our own strength. Okay, the babes, they were carried by their parents. We must not come through our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own good works. We can only come to Christ in our helpless state. Okay, looking to him and to his grace alone. I think that's what this passage is commanding us to do. It's their helplessness, not their goodness, that commends them to Christ. Just like the widow, who was totally helpless. She had no options, and she was coming with that agenda. These children come, not because of anything they've done, not because of all the good things they've done, not because they deserve it, but because their parents are carrying them. And I want to suggest that there's something here that Jesus wants us to understand. He is the one who carries us into his kingdom. He is the one who has done all of the work to carry us in. We haven't done anything. We have come totally helpless, totally reliant on his grace and mercy for this situation. And we come with that posture. He's the one with the outstretched arm that can save today. He is the one who has conquered sin and death. So this is the posture that we come with. Totally reliant, carried in by his blood alone. It's a really challenging passage. And I think there's some questions for us to ask. So we have to look at our lives and say, listen, what are the things in our lives that we're holding on to that we don't want to give up? And I'm not saying this means you have to go away and sell it or get rid of it. It's about Jesus, being open to Jesus and being willing. When he says go, it means go. When he says do this, it means do it. These idols in our life, often they control us and they control the way we behave. And if you know there are things in your life, and as we, as we worship now, I'm expecting the Holy Spirit. This is what he loves to do. He loves to come sensitively with absolute grace and to just pinpoint, just like Jesus did. Doesn't feel that sensitive, I know. He wants to come and pinpoint in our lives the areas that he wants to say, ah, let me take that off you. You don't need that. Remember, he has done it all. He loves you with an everlasting love that cannot fail. And this isn't about trying to prove yourself this morning or do things that you think are going to make him love you more. We know it. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or make him love you less.
we enter his kingdom on that basis.